0: The following is a message of First Baptist Richardson. For more information, please visit fbcr.org. You know, preachers have a, a saying that they talk about Sunday morning worship. And uh, the, the saying is this, great music in a mediocre sermon is always a great worship experience. Amen? <laughs> so what it means today, the... Uh, Andy and Heath, the pressure's off me, okay? And uh, great choir orchestra, everybody! What a what a what a neat moment! Amen. <clears throat> if those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Gary Smith, and I am the guest preacher for these weeks preceding Easter with my wife, Sandy, and you got the joy today of number three granddaughter, Abby, okay? And uh, if you want to get to know her, just start with Pig Suey. She's a Razorback, okay? uh, We love that at our house, uh, being from Arkansas, but it's great to be with you. I'm in the middle of a sermon series that's going to conclude next week called Final Instructions. What we've been doing in these last few weeks is looking at the last things Jesus taught by his life and by his words uh, leading up to this moment called Easter Sunday. And uh, not that the final instructions are the most important, everything Jesus said was important, but certainly uh, these last days he spoke as never before. And today we're going to look at Mark chapter 16. Get your Bibles with me. And let me say to you, quite honestly... There are 31,000 plus verses in all the Bible. It's a vast book. If you were to eliminate all of those except for these 15 verses, we would still be here today celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And yet, if you were to eliminate those 15 verses and what it says in the other gospels, then there wouldn't be any meaning to the rest of those 31,000 verses. So today we're going to hone in on the most important words, the most important event in the history of humanity. So let's stand in honor of God's word. Would you please stand with me? Mark chapter 16, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, They went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone from us from the entrance? And looking up, they saw that the stone had already been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in white robes. And they were, you ought to circle this word, because we're going to focus on it today. They were very alarmed. He said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will uh, see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, trembling with astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone. And they were very, very afraid. Now, when they rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared this Mary Magdalene, by the way, this lady that he cast out seven demons. And she went and told those who had been with them. And they mourned and they wept. And when they heard that he was alive uh, and had been seen by her, they didn't believe it. And after these things appeared in another form of two, to two of them, I believe this is the road to Emmaus who's walking into the country, and they went back and told the rest. But guess what? They didn't believe them. Afterwards, they appeared to the eleven themselves as they were climbing at a table. He rebuked them for what? Their unbelief and their hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, you go into all the world, and you proclaim this gospel to the entire creation. You may be seated. Sometimes God gives you experiences in life that are very, very sobering, that kind of bring your attention. I had one of those recently, uh, being retired as I am, I've retired at the age of 45, okay? And being retired... Uh, I get a few checks from some retirement income, and I, I'm always aware as I look at my bank account when uh, those checks are due to come in, and one of them is due on the 15th of the month, and it didn't make it, and so I thought, well, okay, you know how banks are and things, and I went a few more days, and it still wasn't there, and got to the end of the month, and so I picked up the phone and called my good friend Jeff, who helps me, I say, hey, Jeff. Uh, uh, this check and you all about it. I said, uh, it did not make it. And, uh, uh, Sandy might not get to eat. I'll still play golf because I play out of the other check. All right. And, uh, so, uh, he said, well, let me check in on. And so he calls me back in about 10 minutes. He said, are you sitting down? And I said, yes, I am. And he says, well, I called Prudential and they have declared that you are dead. Now, he, he didn't say you're sick, you're, uh, you know, you're hobbling around or whatever. They have declared that you are dead. And he said, I told me. he said, well, that dead man just called me, okay? And uh, Sandy was very alarmed. And the reason she was alarmed, not because of dead, but because she's supposed to still keep getting the check, okay? It shows you what I'm worth to this household, Okay. And I said, well, let's go about this, so I called Social Security, and I've been on the waiting phone for about three days and two nights, okay, and I finally got them, and I said, I'm Gary Smith, gave them my password, what do you say about me, am I dead or alive? And they said, well, we'll be glad to tell you, Mr. Smith, that you're still alive, okay, and so I went in and announced that to Sandy, and she was okay with it, I guess, okay, yeah, We, we have a, a saying at our household, she's promised me when I die, she'll at least look sad through the funeral, okay, and just get it done that long. But have you ever had to prove you were alive? I had a friend of mine that, one of my buddies, Mac Bond, this happened to Mac. It took him six weeks, two visits, two phone calls with Social Security to convince him he was still living. And have you ever had to be in that situation where you were proving that you were not dead, that you were alive? Well, I want you to know for the last 2,000 years, the last 2,000 years, the church has been declaring what these children told us. He's not here. He's risen. He's alive. Yet you and I know that skeptics have tried to disprove it. You and I know that people said it's a fairy tale. And certainly you would know today, if you could disprove this, you would write a bestseller and the whole world would want to know it. And and these churches would all close up because if he's not alive, if he's not alive, we really don't have reason to meet here today. The reality is, is we believe today that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he is alive. And yet you see in this text that these folks who interacted with this empty grave, interacted with the risen Lord, that there were many around him who had seen his miracles, listened to him teach, had watched him go to the cross, and they couldn't believe that people were declaring, he is not here, he is risen. In fact, you look in this text, these words just jump off the page. Said these women went to the tomb and they were alarmed. Uh, this word alarmed is a word that means dumbfounded. They were trembling. They were astonished. They were looking at this, and, and, and it, it, it means they were deeply troubled. And they just couldn't believe it. it really happened. They were going to everyone else and telling them what had happened, and everyone was looking at them as, we can't believe it's true. Can't believe it's true. And these disciples were told multiple times that it was true and still didn't believe it was happening. And, and they, were, they were rebuked by Jesus for what? their unbelief and the hardness of their heart, their inability to to grab a hold of what had happened there at that tomb when Jesus rose. But I'd, I'd submit to you today that all of those emotions they felt in those early hours are the same emotions that many people feel today, and maybe even some of you in this room feel today. You listen to us declare that he has risen You listen to the testimony of people singing and talking about the risen Savior. And I don't know why you are here today. Maybe your family coerced you to come. Maybe this is a family event. But in reality, when you look at the resurrection... You feel some of the exact same emotions that were described by them. You, you're astonished. You, you say, well, you know, that, that, that could be true. That, that possibly could be true. And, and, and yet even as we sing this hallelujah chorus and tears come to our eyes, you look at that and you say, how do you know this? Who has proven That this Jesus that died on that cross, that we celebrated this Friday night, that that truly his tomb was empty, there's all kinds of theories, that that possibly his body was stolen, that maybe he just swooned on the cross or, or had some way to make this fantasy or make it not true. Because you realize today, you realize today if it is true, it changes everything about life and about you. About what we do, where we go, what we say, how we spend our money, how we spend our time—that if in reality Jesus has been risen from the dead, it's something we need to look at. In fact, Josh McDowell has an incredible book if you ever want to read about this. It's called *Evidence That Demands a Verdict*, and he talks about the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he says about that, it isn't just something you can put off as happen chance. It demands from us a verdict about how we feel about it? Are we some religious leaders who just don't want it to happen? Are we maybe some uh, folks out there in the secular world that's trying to snuff it out because it has so much impact on this world? Is it really something that went on 2,000 years ago or is it just fantasy for the church? Something that just has been said over and over again to the point where everyone says it and gives a quasi belief to it. In reality, Josh McDowell says there's some great evidence that you need to confront. First of all, the reality of the fact that there's historical data that, that says that Jesus rose from the dead. And we trust in historical data. Just take George Washington, the first president of the United States, and I look around this room, and some of you are a little older than me, but we weren't around when George Washington was president. How do you know that he was president? Did you vote on him? did you see him? Did you listen to him talk? No. You trust and I trust the historical data that is true. And the historical data says to us that that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He appeared to 500 people at one time. And so historical data, not just the Bible, gives to us reliable historical data that says to us, this man, Jesus, went into a tomb. And that tomb today is empty and no longer is he is there. You you, you cannot deny that fact. In Josh McDowell's book, he mentions the fact that this issue has been taken to a court of law in the law schools of Harvard and Yale. And they have come back saying there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt just in the historical data that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But also, you have the multiple eyewitness accounts of these 500 people. Now remember that these accounts were written during their lifetime. And so when you talk about him rising from the dead, you're talking about people who were around at that time. In other words, if today I told you, by the way, Ronald Reagan is still alive. Did you not know that? He was president, one of my favorite presidents. Ronald, by the way, didn't die. He might have heard that he died, but he's alive living in his ranch in California. Well, certainly you could go investigate that because we are eyewitnesses to his life. Well, please understand, the scripture was written during the time that this happened. And by the way, in the history of mankind, no one has ever given proof that it was not true. And so you have these eyewitness accounts, then you have the change of heart of these disciples. Remember, these 11 guys had quit They'd given up. They were running for their life. They were going back to Galilee. They were going back to their former occupations. These 11 guys said, okay, he died on that cross. So it's over for me and we're not going to believe this. Even Thomas said, hey, I got to see the nail prints in the guy's hands before I'm going to believe it. And yet, and yet those 11 disciples suddenly gave their lives to this message. They didn't make any extra money from it. They didn't gain any kind of fame from it. They were all about, John, were martyred for their faith. What in the world would make this group of people who were hiding out to suddenly stand into the streets of Jerusalem? I submit to you, they met the risen Lord. And they believed it because they saw it. The transformation of their lives, it's unbelievable. You, you just take Peter alone, this guy that a little slave girl was causing him to curse and to say, I don't know this guy, now is standing in front of those same people declaring, this Jesus whom you crucified, he is alive and you can take me today if you want to. What would cause that? Did they listen to one of my sermons on their tape and, and get this idea? Oh, that's wonderful. Gary proved it. Uh, You know, it's something that's declared in the constitution of some country. No, you know what caused it to happen? They met the risen Lord. And in meeting the risen Lord, they were willing to give their lives to it. They realized it was a life-changing experience. You just take Saul of Tarsus. You know that he's written a good third of our New Testament. He's a guy, you study his history. This man, Saul, uh, hated the church. He's given his life to destroying the church giving his life to wiping out the church. And you see this guy that the disciples even feared because he was such a mean dude, okay? And now you find him giving his life for the gospel. You find him walking the streets of Jerusalem, the same place that he possibly held this coach so they could stone Stephen. This guy is now standing up and declaring something. What? I met Jesus on the way to Damascus. And you can't believe this, but listen, that tomb is empty because he is alive. His transformation alone, What if today the headlines in the newspaper, you picked them up this morning and say, in a change of heart, Hillary Clinton has decided to endorse D- Donald Trump as president. Okay. <laughs> you would go, okay. You know, that's just some more of that good news that I read every day. All right. You go, there's no way. But please realize, that is nothing in comparison to what transformed that early church to be something that here we are 2,000 years later, and we're listening to songs, and we're gathering together, and we're praising the Lord. Why? It's because there's proof of resurrection. So what does that mean? It demands a verdict from us. We can't just sit here and listen and say, hey, honey, what's for lunch? Can't wait to get out of here. Maybe this sermon will be brief so I can get on home. No, it demands for us to look at this issue and say, what does it mean if he is alive? Is it just about buildings and choirs and budgets and preachers that get up and talk about it? Or is it something that can transform my life like it transformed their lives? I'd say to you today that I think it means some pretty significant things. First of all, it means, listen to this, he is alive today. It's one thing for them to talk about it 2,000 years ago, but it also means that we serve a risen, living Savior. And when we talk about Jesus Christ, we're not talking about some place like Abraham Lincoln's tomb or, 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 or Ronald Reagan's tomb or somebody else that we know where they are buried. We talk about someone who's alive. Someone who's alive. And when we pray today, we don't pray to a church. We don't pray to a statue. We don't pray to some religious system. When we say in Jesus' name, we're talking to a living Savior. And it means today, listen to this. People like you and me can talk to God. (laughs) Why? Because Jesus is alive this one who made this universe, this one who sustains this universe, knows the hairs on our head or the lack of hairs on our head or whatever. He knows everything about us. He knows our thoughts before we think them. He knows our ways before they happen. And it means today that we are serving a living Savior. But it also means he's at work still in our creation. Now, it is so much fun to study the New Testament and see all that Jesus did during those days. How he healed people with blind eyes. How he took people who who were dead and brought them back to life. How he fed thousands with just a little bit. And it's great to read about all that stuff that he did back then. But do you realize he is still working today? And the reason he's still working today is because, listen to this. He is not dead. He is risen. And he has said, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. As this age comes to an end, you need to know something. I'm not somewhere off at a coffee shop reading my favorite book. I'm right in the middle of life. And I'm right in the middle of this history. In fact, the history of this world is written reality, not history. It is his story and his involvement today. You say, well, wait a minute, Gary. How can you say that when you look at where our culture is going today? How immoral it is. How, how you, you look at God's name is used in vain. You look at what's happening around and you say, how in the world can you even believe that God is at all interested, that God hadn't walked away from all this? How can you believe that this God is still involved today because he is alive? Well, I'll tell you, I'm seeing that he's alive. Our own church where we go to church every week, Fielder Road Baptist Church in Arlington. A year ago, God led our pastor Jason to bring us more to prayer and at the end of each service to have a baptistry ready for everyone who wanted to be saved and wanted to be baptized. And one year ago today, we have now baptized over 400 people who have come to Jesus whose lives have been transformed. In fact, I got to help one one day. A young man came back and said, hey, I want to talk to you. You, you've been my pastor for years, but my life is a mess. And would you talk with me? We got on our knees, and that young man surrendered his life to Christ. And last Wednesday night when I was at the prayer meeting, he was in the row in front of me there for the prayer meeting. God's at work. God's at work in our world. At Asbury University in Kentucky, have you been reading about what happened up there? How can you miss what God did at a chapel service? 10 or 15 students, when the service was over, it's time to go to class. And no, we want God's presence. We're going to just stay and pray. 16 days later, 384 hours later, they were still meeting in a prayer meeting. It got to the place, the line went down the block. 50,000 people went to that town because they wanted a glimpse of God. College students have seen the emptiness of this world and the emptiness of what this world can give them were on their knees for hours, crying out to God, saying, oh God, change my life and touch me. People were healed, lives were changed. It spread all over the country. Baylor University, Texas A&M University have had spontaneous things happen. By the way, if it can happen in Aggieland, it can happen in anywhere, amen? I just made 20 of you mad at me, Okay. Boy, they need need revival down there. Okay, no. I want you to know something. God is up to something in our world. You may be living apart from it and not experience it. But I'm going to tell you, all over Africa, there are almost entire nations coming to Jesus. The largest movement of small house groups. You know what country it's happening in? It's happening in Iran. The most evil empires in all the world. God is at work. And why is he at work? It's because 2,000 years ago, someone stepped out of that grave and he's alive. And I want you to know, I feel his presence when I come into this room. I want you to know, if nothing but today happened, I would know I serve a risen Savior. Because you know something else? We have the promise that he's at work in our world. But listen to this. We have the promise that he's at work in you and me. One of my favorite verses, Philippians 1, Paul said, I'm sure of this. I'm certain of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. The fact today that you felt the spirit of God has nothing to do with Andy. It has nothing to do with these musicians has everything to do with a holy God. That holy God brought his son from the dead and says to you and me, you gather in my name, I'm going to show up. And what we have today is God's work within our lives and we're certain about it. The fact that he still moves in our soul says something about the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. Is alive. And he's alive in our world and he's alive within us. And he says to you and me, For those who love me and those who are called according to my purpose, I will work everything together for good for that. And the fact that God takes the messes of our lives and the chaos of what's going on around you and all that is going on, and He and somehow makes us into something better out of it, somehow transforms us. That's not a church. It's not a denomination. It's not some rule book that we're living by. It is a risen Savior. Who has come to live within you and me, and has said to you and me, You surrender your life to me. I've got something I'm going to be working on every day. I've got something that will take everything around you and work it together for good. What is that proof of? Is it proof of a church, a sermon, a set of rules? No, it is proof that this Savior, Jesus Christ, is alive today. And he's alive today working, working in our lives. And this Bible also says to us, he will come again one day and bring us to himself. This living Savior, one of these days is going to wrap it up. Now, it could be that that declaration, you are dead, is just the declaration of the truth, Okay. But guess what it says about death? Death doesn't have a victory over us anymore. Because he came from the dead, our death shall just be a moment. And in that moment, we will step into the presence of a living Savior who's experienced everything that we've experienced. And at that moment, at that moment, we step into the presence of God because of that living Savior, because of what he's done for our lives. And today, if the declaration of death... It's something that happens soon. You and I have some hope that little boy had in his hand. Something to look forward to. But one of these days, guess what? He's going to part the heavens and come back. In fact, if you don't believe it soon, you get Matthew 23 and 24 and start reading about it. It's like today's newspaper. The lawlessness, the lack of love within our world, the bitterness, the prejudice, the rancor, all the division that's going on, do you think that's an accident? No, it's the result of a world that's turned away from God. God promises you and me that he's coming back. You say, well, how, how can that change my life? I was listening this week. A friend sent me a little video. I, I just love it. It's the, the story that what someone thought happened when the thief who died on the cross next to Jesus, went to heaven? Because Jesus promised him it would happen. He got to heaven, and, and we have this idea, this scene. Peter's there, well, why should I let you in? Why? He kind of looked at him, I don't know why I should get in. Well, wait a minute, what church did you go to? Well, uh, were you Baptist, Methodist? Wow, what are those words? Where were you baptized? No, I just was on a cross and died. And I'm here to say that I ought to get in. And Peter said, they said the, the angel went to get the supervisor and he brought in a groom and said, This guy doesn't know why he ought to get in. And they're looking at him and they're saying, why, why should you be in? He said, Well, all I know, all I know is the guy on the middle cross told me I could go. Guess who the one on the middle cross was? It was Jesus. It was Jesus that said, Today, You will be with me in paradise. So it means today that the only way you and I will ever experience the risen Savior is through Jesus. Great as this church is, not through this church. As good a person you think you might have been, it sure won't be by bad. It'll be because there was one who came from heaven to this earth, died on a cross for our sins. And three days later, rose again. You see, for me, the greatest evidence of the resurrection of Jesus is not what happened back there with those disciples. The greatest evidence to me is what happened right here. 1969, it was August. I was in a worship service kind of sitting right over here. And the preacher preaches a sermon about Moses in the burning bush. And he said, the burning bush was God. And it could have been any kind of bush. Could have been an old thorny bush or a beautiful bush. What made the bush usable was that God was in the bush. And I realized that night, my only hope was that the God of creation, through Jesus, would come live in this thorny bush. And use my life. I surrendered my life to Christ that night. And it transformed my life. In a moment. I want you to know something happened in me. That's not about church. It's not about the preacher. It is about the work of the spirit of God. Because the spirit of God represents the living Jesus. And the living Jesus. It's something in me. I can't explain. I haven't been the same since. And I don't want to go back and be who I was before. You say, Gary, is it all gone right? No. No. We've had some challenges in our lives. In 1986, we had a 13-year-old son who died in a tragic accident. I had to decide at that moment. Was my belief because of what someone told me, what I learned in a seminary class, or did I believe Jesus rose from the dead? And I went on a quest to study the resurrection of Jesus and came to the conclusion, as best I know, by faith. I believe Jesus is alive. And when we sing these songs about him being alive, I believe my son is alive. Where does that come from? It comes from a risen Savior. And if you've never experienced the risen Savior, that's why we're having church today. Is we want you to experience the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what does it take? It takes your willingness to believe. Now, you weren't there, but you have to believe that it happened and that it impacts you and will change your life. In a moment, we're going to sing a song just as I am. I'm going to be here at the front with your staff. If you're here this day from the far reaches of this balcony, wherever you'd be, I promise you, Whatever it takes for you to get here to receive Jesus, it'll be life-changing. Why? Not because I promise it. Not because this church promises it. Because the living Savior promises it to you. Bow your head with me, please, for just a moment, would you? Let me just ask you, Have you experienced the life-changing relationship with the risen Jesus? Today, we'd love for you to be a part of this church, but we want you to be a part of what God's doing. And yes, it's Easter, and this is a large crowd, and you may have to move some people out to come. But I've never seen anyone who did that, that ever regretted giving their heart to Jesus. Father, take this moment. Take this moment and let us realize that we get to heaven because of what happened on that middle cross and what happened at that tomb when that stone was rolled away. Oh God, let us not be rebuked for unbelief and hardness of heart, but let us be transformed by the life of Jesus within us. God, you're the persuader, not me, not Andy, not Bill, not anyone on this staff. Has to be the work of your spirit. Holy Spirit today. Holy Spirit today. Spirit of the risen Jesus. Come visit us. Do your work to draw people to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.